Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to the London School of Economics. It's very good to see so many people here. Rushia and I were just talking at the beginning that given we're now well and truly into uh, out of term time and into holiday, whether or not we'd get a full house, but we have, and um, that's excellent news, and I'm sure it will be worth everyone's time that we have, uh, that we have made. Um, my name is Jonathan Black. I am an alumni of the school and um, one of the school's governors. And in my professional life, I am the director of Europe policy at the British Treasury. And so uh, it is an interesting time for me to be hearing this, this speech as, as well. Um, before I welcome Rushir and introduce him, a few bits and pieces on housekeeping, if I, if I can. We will um, break this evening up into, into two bits. First of all, Rushir will speak for about... 45 minutes, and then we will take questions, and I will do my best to give as many people as possible a chance to ask a question if they would like. And then after the, um, after the event, outside, Rashir will be outside available to sign copies of his book. And so, with no more ado, it is a great pleasure to welcome Rashir here tonight. Um, he, as uh, many of you will have seen, is the head of emerging markets and the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. His previous book, which I'm sure many people have read, was uh, Breakout Nations and an international bestseller. And I think the current book is also now climbing up the bestseller list in the US as well. And last year, Bloomberg rated Rashir as one of the 50 most influential thinkers in the world. So it's, um, it's with great pleasure that I ask Rashir to speak to us this evening. And uh, please show your welcome. Thank you. Right. Thanks for that. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I was last here in April of 2012. Uh, and uh, here I am back again with my second book four years later. Um, as some of you may know that I've been a writer for longer than I've been an investor. I began writing in 1991, straight out of uh, high school, uh, um, when I couldn't find enough people uh, to relieve their wealth in my favor and for me to manage their money. <laughs> so that's when I, uh, I thought the next best thing was to, was to write. But writing is, has been my real passion. And for uh, nearly 20 years after that, I had resigned to writing columns, op-eds, uh, and other things. But like most writers, I thought I had a book in me. As some wisecracks said, that was the best place for it. Uh, but I still sort of wanted to pursue that ambition, and therefore I wrote the first book in 2011, which was published in early 2012. Uh, and this book uh, takes it uh, uh, much forward, because the first book was really an economic travelogue, uh, and my impressions of the different countries in the world, of the different emerging markets as I was traveling, uh, but I think that what I was keen to do with this book was to sort of almost uh, share what is, is it exactly that, I, that, that I'm looking for when I'm traveling to these different countries to know which nations are going to rise and which nations are going to fall. Uh, so what I've done here is to basically lay out the 10 most important things uh, for um, why nations rise and fall. So before I start, though, I should now figure out that I've got the presentation up here. Um, is, there a, is there a sort of, uh, I just click here? Okay, great. So let me just get that right. I'll have to do without it otherwise. Okay, there's a hidden keyboard. Okay, here we go. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, 
as I found out in my travels, uh, it, like over the last couple of weeks, that uh, for any talk that I give, the first thing I have to do is to get Brexit out of the way. Because if I don't do that, all the questions are going to be, okay, what do you think about Brexit? So uh, the way I've organized this first is to sort of, uh, and luckily as it happens, that the opening chapter of the book is titled Impermanence. And if I may say so, that some of the themes in the opening chapter of the book are exactly the kind of themes which I think have uh, set the stage for Brexit to happen. So one sort of obvious debate is that is Brexit uh, cause or is it effect? And the way that I come across on this is that it is more effect than cause, that this is part of a series of global disruptions that have been happening in what I call in the book the AC world. So what I do in the book is to split the time periods as BC and AC, BC being before crisis, AC being after crisis. <laughs> and the key thing here being that every single thing we believed in about the world in the BC world has now been turned on its head in the AC world. So, and that's really creating the fertile ground for these kind of events to happen. So for one, this has been the weakest economic recovery in history, as you can see, globally. Uh, that these are various recoveries in post-war history. As you can see now, that uh, seven years out, this is the weakest economic recovery in history. Even though it's been the weakest economic recovery in history, it's been a fantastic time if you are uh, an owner of assets, which is stocks, bonds, and property across the world. Um, what this chart basically shows is that if you look at the U.S. and you look at the valuations of various stocks, bonds, and property, they've never been this expensive when put together. You've had periods in time when stocks have been more expensive or properties been more expensive, but never when all three of them have simultaneously been this expensive. And the implication of this is that the biggest beneficiaries of such an environment tend to be the rich people because it's really the rich people who own most of these assets. As you can see here that inequality was rising in many countries even before the crisis in the BC era, but in the AC era, inequality has been turbocharged. Uh, so this is a study which was in fact done by Credit Suisse um, uh, along with us, and they showed that before the crisis, there were about 12 countries in the world where inequality was rising. After the crisis of the countries they track, that number has jumped threefold. So you're seeing spreading inequality across the world in the AC era. Um, wages clearly have not kept pace with markets. They rarely do, but the gap has never been this wider. So look at what's happened here in the uh, UK, which is that wages, cumulatively, since the recovery began, seven years ago, are up merely 13%, but the stock market has more than doubled in that period. Never before has the gap been this wider between wages and what's happening to uh, uh, the stock market. Billionaires, uh, they're doing quite well, which is that in the BC era, there were about 1,000 billionaires in the world. That number has jumped to nearly double now with 1,800 billionaires in the world. So, that's, so this is really what's setting the stage for so much global angst, that the pie is growing much more slowly than it used to, and yet a growing share of that pie is, is going to people right at the top uh, of the curve. And look at what's happening to leaders. The mood across the world is throw the bums out. And what does this mean? So we track the popularity ratings of the leaders in the world's 20 
largest democracy, uh, democracies. And what this shows here is that there's been a 20 percentage point decline in their popularity this decade, uh, from about 56% to now at about 35%. So leaders across the world are very unpopular today. In the BC era, one out of three incumbents were uh, losing their election. In the AC era, two out of three incumbents have been losing their election. Last year, at least, that was the, uh, the, the case. So the mood is very much anti-establishment, that no matter who's in power, let's get rid of those people. And this is also true, like, and this has got nothing to do with ideology. Uh, it's very popular to think that this is a revolt taking place against free markets, economics, and stuff like that. And the counterpoint I offer to that is what's happening in Latin America. In Latin America, you, you, have, you had a whole bunch of leftists who were in power, and then the leftists are getting thrown out of power. Uh, and instead, the people who are coming to power from Argentina to Brazil to Peru are basically uh, leaders who are the classic free market, new liberal kind of leaders as, as they are known. So it's got nothing to do with ideology. In Europe and America, the, uh, it's much more of a leftist ideology or a populist ideology, which is on the right. It's known as, it's known as extreme right wing, but the difference between the extreme right wing and the left is uh, rather minor in some of those countries. So there's no ideology at, uh, in, in play here. It's basically throw the bums out no matter where they are in the world. And the world is turning much more inward. The buzzword for the last couple of decades was globalization. I think the buzzword this decade and probably going forward is going to be deglobalization. That countries are turning much more inward. How do we see that? Here, look at what's happening like in terms of trade. That the number of discretionary trade measures that countries are taking have gone up substantially like over the last two or three years. So, Countries are basically closing their borders or putting up trade barriers uh, to protect themselves in what they think is a hostile world. The same thing has happened with capital flows. Capital flows have shrunk after surging last decade. And look at how they've collapsed. And much of this capital flow collapse is taking place because uh, banks are far more reluctant to lend outside their borders after the losses and the hits they suffered uh, in the financial crisis of 2008-2009. So really three aspects to what's happened to this deglobalization trend. One, trade volumes have collapsed. Nations have turned more inward by uh, erecting many more protectionist barriers. Second, capital flows have fallen. And third, and this is quite interesting, is migrant flows too have fallen. Even though there's been such a backlash against migrants, if you look at it here, the number of migrants moving from the emerging world to the developed world has fallen considerably this decade. And that trend is likely to only accelerate in the years ahead. So deglobalization is, again, both cause and effect, I think. That it is causing economic growth to slow down at one level, but is also the effect of very weak economic growth that we have seen in the post-crisis era. Now, as far as Brexit is concerned itself, the contribution uh, to global growth from uh, UK and Europe was so low that the potential for them to cause a downside surprise for the global economy is rather limited. When you're already in the basement, you can't fall much further. So, <laughs> I, so that's the entire thing, that as far as the European Union was concerned, it had really been a marginal player in the global growth uh, sweepstakes. So as I mentioned in the book that if you look at all the past global recessions, they were caused by the United States, because the United States was the very large economy. 
this decade, whereas Europe, of course, has been a big uh, disappointment as far as growth is concerned, it's unlikely to cause the next recession just because it's hardly contributed to global growth. Instead, I feel that the next global recession, whenever it comes, and there tends to be once every, one every eight years or so, will bear the label made in China, just like everything else in the world today. <laughs> and the reason I feel that is something that I'll discuss uh, in a bit. But it's partly because China, for the first time, a second economy in the world has emerged, which, uh, which is so big as China, and which has contributed so much to global growth as China has contributed in the last uh, uh, few years. So Brexit for me is really part of a continuum. It is the largest manifestation of the, the uh, new global mood, which is driven by this popular angst. Uh, and the seeds of that have been sown by the fact that this has been the weakest economic recovery in post-war history. Inequality is rising like never before. Uh, we're seeing a period of deglobalization, and a lot of stale leaders in particular are in trouble as they're being thrown out by this popular mood against uh, the incumbents in such a world. So now, in this environment, we just can't sit around and, and say that you know, the world is coming to an end. We still have to go about our task of establishing that, yes, this is a much slower growth world. The global economy is not what it used to be. Uh, as it, uh, of the past few decades. But still, we are going to figure out in this environment which nations will rise and which nations will fall. And I've approached this game from a practitioner's standpoint because a, a lot of such books I find are written typically by academics, which is fine. The only problem I have with a lot of academic stuff is that as a practitioner, I find many of those, um, of those theories are very hard to apply, or most significantly, the time horizons that academics typically apply are so long that it is very difficult for practitioners to um, make use of it. And by practitioners, I mean people who are in government, policymakers, uh, investors, business people, because we can't go to people and tell them uh, that, listen, come back and check how our theory worked out 40 to 50 years from now. We are answerable for the next four to five years at best, uh, if not even shorter than that. I mean, as I say, uh, say here in the book that the old rule of forecasting used to be that you make as many forecasts as possible and you re keep reminding people when you're right. <laughs> the new rule of forecasting is that uh, you forecast so far out in the future that neither you nor I will be here to know whether I was right or wrong. <laughs> and I think that this is exactly what the academics basically sort of, I mean, like it's my biggest grudge about them, that, you know, like you, how the world will be in 2050 or 2060. Who cares? We are practitioners. We are, you know, we, we are really interested in the next four to five years because that's what our constituency wants to know as to what's going to happen. Plus, there's also a scientific fact about this, which is that uh, super forecasters such as, uh, I mean, who have studied super forecasters such as Philip Tetlock have said the longer you forecast, the more prone you are to errors. And anything beyond five years is almost meaningless. So keeping that in mind, um, what I've done here is to identify what are the 10 most important things to look at to gauge if a nation is going to do well or not do well over the next 5 to 10 years at best, keeping in mind that this is a much slower uh, growth environment across the world. There's no region which is growing as quickly as it was in the BC era. And the key here is to eliminate a lot of the things which don't 
matter. And I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Rule number one, people matter. Uh, why do people matter? Well, there are two drivers of economic growth. One is productivity, and two is the increase in your labor force. Those are the two drivers of economic growth, and they've, and they've both contributed in equal measure to economic growth historically. Now, on productivity, as you know, there's an endless debate about whether it's being measured right or not being measured right, how much is the slowdown for real, how much of it is an accounting exercise. But one very important development, which I think has gone underappreciated, is the depopulation bomb, as I call it. What does this mean? We grew up in the 1970s and 80s really concerned about how there was an explosion in the world's population taking place. That the growth rate in the world's population was the highest in history in this post-war period uh, from 1950 till about 1990 or so. After that, the world's population growth rate has been slowing down. But in economic terms, what really matters is the working age population, people in the age group of 15 to 64. And as you can see here, that for much of post-war history, that growth rate was about 2% on average. But since then, that growth rate has been uh, falling since 1990, but really since 2005, it's fallen off a cliff. So today, the world's population growth rate and the working age population growth rate is just 1% a year, which is half the pace that it used to be in, in, uh, uh, for much of post-war history. So this is just coincidence that it has happened around the same time as the global financial crisis, but is a very important reason why the global economy today is growing much slower than it was uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s. You just don't have enough people contributing to growth the way they used to. Uh, in fact, in the world today, there are about 35 countries where the working age population is shrinking, led by China. And what our work shows is that uh, demographics and population gr growth is a necessary, though not sufficient, is a necessary condition for high economic growth. And uh, uh, we found that for economies that grew at a pace of more than 6% a year, you typically needed the working age population to grow at about 2% a year. In fact, there is no mainstream economy in the world which has grown at a rate of more than 6% without actually increasing the working age population. So therefore, I find it's act impossible for China to grow at a rate of 6% anymore when its working age population today is shrinking. So which are the countries which have an advantage here? It's these countries where the working age population is, is increasing. As I said, it is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. There are large parts of these uh, economies which may never be able to capitalize on this demographic dividend, so to speak. But still, this is a good starting point to know, that which are the countries where it's increasing or decreasing. Coming back to Brexit, you know, the, like, uh, as you possibly know, that, like, like in, the U, uh, in the UK, the entire increase which took place in the UK's working age population this decade came from immigrants. Uh, the domestic population in UK otherwise uh, is uh, stagnating to possibly declining. So whatever increases taking place in the working age population is coming really from the flow of immigrants. Uh, and that's what sort of explains it out here. Otherwise, the uh, rate of growth of the working age population in UK uh, is uh, close to zero. The second rule I talk about here is the circle of life. So as you can see here, that there are, uh, most countries are stuck in this circle. 
There are about 200 economies in the world today that are tracked uh, in terms of their performance by the IMF, World Bank, etc. Of the 200, only 35 are classified as developed. All the others are classified as emerging, and many of them have been emerging forever, like Brazil, Mexico. These countries for 100 years have seen zero economic uh, progress compared to the leading economy in the world, such as the United States. So, uh, uh, and it's partly because these countries are stuck in the circle of life, which is that these leaders only carry out economic reform when there's a crisis, and then when a crisis leads to a, a, a revival, they get complacent very soon, and the complacency then sows the seeds for the next crisis, and they keep going around in these circles. Um, one thing which I have done in the book is I've sort of identified that point uh, when I sort of, uh, when it struck me that this rule really matters. When did the penny drop? So in the circle of life story, um, I had, you know, like an interesting sort of uh, uh, anecdote to share here uh, as to when it really struck me that what's the problem with, uh, with countries and when do when are leaders good for a nation and when are leaders bad for a nation? That's the key thing to identify out here. So it was October 2010. Um, I was invited to go to uh, Russia to attend a conference. Uh, then the organizers called me up uh, a few days before the conference and said that then Prime Minister Putin is also going to be at the conference. And his office has requested if you as a large investor can make a frank presentation about what you think about Russia. So I, uh, as an investor, I took the word frank quite seriously, and I decided, okay, I'm going to make a frank presentation about Russia. So I put a whole bunch of slides together. I landed up in Moscow in October uh, of 2010, and here I was on stage. There was uh, just like Johnson sitting there. Putin was sitting there on stage, along with Christine Lagarde, who was the then French finance minister and one of the chief guest uh, for the conference. I began to present. What I did not know is that this is going to be telecast live on television. <laughs> so I began with my frank assessment that when Putin first came to power in 2000, he was a reformer. He carried out lots of economic reforms, uh, introduced a flat tax, promised to keep out of business, promised to sort of uh, 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 bring about much greater political stability after the chaos of the 1990s. And it was fine in terms of how Russia did well after that. Fast forward to 2010 today. And today, the economy is extremely dependent on oil, hasn't been able to diversify. It is very uh, um, so, uh, dominated by a bunch of bad billionaires at the top. Uh, there are the, that it has the least number of small and medium-sized enterprises of any major economy in the world. And so on I went about the presentation. Now, Putin was sitting there, poker-faced. He took notes down. I thought it's all going well. Christine Lagarde, Christine Lagarde was a bit, Christine Lagarde was a bit sort of, bit sort of, you know, like, uh, was it like squirming a bit and, and stuff about what exactly was going on. I finished my presentation. Uh, I sat down. Putin spoke next. He seemed to acknowledge a couple of points in the presentation. I said, great, right? That's what, that's what you want. And I went back to my hotel then. Next morning, I was woken up by calls from my office saying, what have you done? <laughs> so I, 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 I asked them that, you know, what do you mean, what have I done? So they said, haven't you read the Russian press? I said, I do not read Russian. What have they said? And they said that the Kremlin-controlled Russian pre uh, press had basically 
launched a concerted tirade to say that, like, I've come here, spoiled the party, they don't need my money, you know, like, who needs it? The price of oil is $100 a barrel, etc. I can take all this advice and go home, blah, 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 was how the sort of press uh, read. The, the subtle message was, go home. I left Moscow that evening. I haven't gone back. <laughs> but what struck me then... But what struck me then was this rule, that the longer the leader stays in office, the worse it typically tends to be for that country. And so I decided, okay, let's test this in a very simple way, which is that... Yeah, although the stock market is an imperfect indicator of an economy, but I found some pretty surprising uh, results out here, which is that the 90% of the outperformance of a stock market in an emerging market tends to happen in the first two years of a new leader. And then the returns tend to flatten out, and the lo longer a leader stays in office, the worse the outcome. So if, and, and that's played itself out as far as Russia, Turkey, etc. are concerned. So I think that that for me was one of the really interesting bits in terms of the fact that, you know, that that was a good price to pay for visiting Moscow, that that penny dropped, that, that, that this is not the Putin today uh, that he was in 2000 or so. So that's the big difference. The other thing that I looked at in the circle of life is a very basic question that's been debated forever. Are democracies or authoritarian leaders better for, uh, for economic growth? And what I came away with out here was that authoritarian leaders may be able to generate very high economic growth, but they're equally prone to also generating long periods of economic slumps. So democracy versus authoritarian uh, regimes, they both are able to generate economic growth, but the variance is much larger under authoritarian regimes, that you either end up getting busts or you end up getting booms. And sometimes you get both within spells of... 10 to 15 years. So that's really the key thing, that democracies are slower moving, but over longer periods of time, they're steadier in terms of their growth rates. Authoritarian regimes, it's all about luck. You get the right leaders, you can do very well. You can get uh, Deng Xiaoping, but the same system can also throw up a Mao, you know, which can lead to long slumps. So it's all about uh, luck and getting the right leadership as far as that's concerned. The third rule had to, I mean, has to do with good billionaires and bad billionaires. And I have to say this is the most recent rule that I've come up with. And it's a, because of the fact that inequality is increasingly threatening economic growth across the world. This was not the case 10 to 15 years ago. And what do I mean by that? My point here is that I'm trying to look for which countries is wealth creation still considered a good thing and in which countries ha has there been such a populist backlash that wealth creation is not considered to be a good thing. How do you measure that? Uh, all the metrics that economists use, like Gini coefficients, et cetera, tend to be quite dated or not that uh, available that regularly. For me, this is a very real-time way of figuring out that which nations are, are out of balance as far as income inequality is concerned and, and susceptible to populist revolts against wealth creation compared to which nations are in a better space. So I looked at three metrics out here in terms of which nations... Uh, uh, like are out of balance and are not are out of balance. One, billionaire wealth as a share of global GDP. Where is this too high and where is this too low? In the countries it's too high, it, like obviously is a problem. But even in countries where it's too low, like Japan, 
and, and stuff, it's a problem. It means the environment is not conducive for wealth creation. You want to be close to the average level, which in the world is about 10%. The average level of a billionaire wealth in a country in the world today is about 10%, and Russia is at one extreme and Japan at the other extreme. The other one is uh, the share of billionaire wealth coming from corruption-prone industries. The thinking here being that the corruption-prone industries are those industries where, the, uh, where you typically tend to make the wealth because of the right connections or being able to manage the system. That's where you end up sort of making the wealth. And the corruption-prone industries are in sectors often such as mining, oil and gas, real estate, where you basically have some government involvement which takes place. So that's really what I try and look for out here, that what share of the wealth is coming from corruption-prone industries, because too many billionaires coming from this industry really leads to a backlash against uh, wealth. On the other hand, when you have billionaires who come from industries such as technology, manufacturing, and stuff associated with like innovation, pharmaceuticals, those billionaires tend to be much more respected in a nation. And in that regard, I still find that the United States scores relatively well. And why I make the point, uh, which is very important today, is that someone like a Donald Trump, if he was, there's no chance that a billionaire would be able to stand for president in economies such as Russia, Mexico, even in places like India, because they are perceived there to not be entirely clean and honest, many of them. Whereas in the United States, a bulk of the wealth creation is done by people like Zuckerberg or Gates and stuff like that, and those people are quite revered uh, by the working classes of, of uh, of America. So I think that that's the key thing here, that where is the wealth being created? And the third part, in a similar vein, is uh, what share of billionaire wealth is coming from inheritance? Any country is going to have some wealth come from inheritance, as far as billionaires are concerned. But where is this too high, and where is this too low? And as you can see here, that Russia and China, obviously, it's too low, because these economies were only, recent, uh, only recently adopted some sort of a free market capitalist system. But you see that places like Germany, India, Korea, in these places, a lot of the wealth basically comes because people uh, or the billionaires here inherited the wealth. So I look at all these three metrics to figure out which nations are out of balance and which nations are doing fine as far as income inequality is concerned. As you can see, that one country which consistently ranks on the right-hand scale here is Russia and, and countries like Mexico, um, and the ones which rank on a better way uh, is the United States, even though there the wealth explosion has been quite incredible this decade. At least on the two other metrics, the United States ranks okay. The UK is basically middling uh, on most of these metrics. The perils of the state. Uh, this sort of is my bias here, which is that I come from a country where the state has done incredible damage to the economic prospects of that nation, which is India. Uh, and so what I look for here is that in which countries are governments meddlesome, and which countries are they less meddlesome, and where are taxes and spending too high, and where is it too low? As you can see here, that the oversized states here with very high state spending in the share of GDP are those in Europe. And then there's the case of Brazil, which has basically created a welfare state prematurely without having the money to do so, and one of the main reasons why the economy has not done that, that well over so many years. And uh, then you have the other extremes of Korea and Taiwan. In these places, it's almost as if it is uh, far uh, too uh, low in terms of the, how much the state is spending on welfare in these countries. 
Then the geographic sweet spot. Which countries are open for business which are closed? Which countries are taking a lot of protectionist measures which are not? Uh, so this tells you like, something about the recent mindset, that which countries are turning more protectionist and taking more protectionist measure, measures. Surprisingly, India and Russia topped this chart. And you've got all these economies in uh, uh, East Asia and, and, uh, and even in places like Mexico, etc., which tend to be much more open economies. So the more open uh, you are, the better uh, it is, is the general thinking, even though in today's day and age, when global trade is doing so poorly, you may not benefit too much from being an open economy, but still, the less protectionist you are, the better it is. So that's the external geography. The other interesting thing I came up with was the internal geography. And this rule came to me uh, when I was traveling in Thailand, again around 2010. Because one thing which struck me uh, was that why does Thailand keep having these uh, civil wars virtually between Bangkok and the rest of the country? What really is behind this? And what I figured out was that there's something wrong if, a, if you have one city which is very, very powerful and populous compared to the other cities in that country. And here I found that as far as Thailand is concerned, the, the population of Bangkok is nearly 10 times larger than the second largest city. The right number I figured out, if you look at the world today, is about 3 to 1. That most economies, the ratio of the population between the largest city and the second largest city is about 3 to 1. And in the developed world, the two economies which are out of balance on the score are France and UK. And so I know like in UK, a big sort of initiative uh, of the governments now has been to try and develop other uh, places outside of London. But the concentration of wealth in London has long been an issue as far as UK is concerned. And a part of the reason why you end up getting popular resentment against Londoners outside of uh, UK. The sixth rule is about factories first, which is that investment is key to an economy's growth rate, particularly if you're a developing economy. Uh, what is that sweet spot? What's that right level uh, of investment as a share of GDP which facilitates high economic growth? The number I have there is somewhere, uh, somewhere between 25 to 35 percent. Uh, China is far too high because it's well above 40 percent. And then you've got a whole bunch of countries which are far too low, like Brazil, Russia, Turkey. These economies hardly ever invest out there. As I wrote even in my previous book, like Breakout Nations, that when you go to Brazil, you truly feel like James Bond, you know, when you go to Sao Paulo, because you're taken from one meeting to another, often by helicopters on top of the helipads of the buildings, right? Because the roads just aren't there for you to travel by in Sao Paulo. But so that tells you about the fact how poor is the infrastructure in countries such as Brazil that's spending so much on welfare, but so little on basics of building roads, ports, and other things which facilitate high economic growth in the long run. So that's really the debate between, for many countries also today. The old debate was guns versus butter. The new debate is really infrastructure versus subsidies. And the successful East Asian economies spent much more on infrastructure than they did uh, on subsidies. And uh, that's what sort of led those economies to do very well, because they were able to build solid manufacturing bases on the back of that. So what this chart shows here is that really manufacturing is the killer app for development, that economies which want to uh, rise quickly do so when they have strong manufacturing sectors. On the other hand, if you're an oil exporting country, the chances of you sort of growing rapidly are much less. This is what the history of economic convergence uh, shows to us over a long period of time. Um, which economies today are manufacturing powers and which are 
underachievers in the emerging world as you can see that this is the difference between east asia and latin america and uh, africa that in latin america and africa all these economies hardly invest in manufacturing or have good manufacturing bases the key to east asia's economic success has been the strength in manufacturing and something which is also being replicated to some degree in eastern europe and why as i'll tell you at the end i'm relatively optimistic on eastern europe uh in terms of the uh their growth prospects uh that they're much better positioned than africa and and countries in latin america with a nearly similar per capita income in the developed world as you can see that uh uk uh manufacturing is rather low as a share of their gdp which i think is well known uh, uh <clears throat> here and so is the case in australia and some of the commodity exporting countries and like and france germany scores so high a reason why Germany remains such an economic powerhouse today is how it's uh, retained its manufacturing edge uh, just uh, over long periods uh, of time then the price of onions this revelation came to me in india which is the fact that when you have high price of onions they often make governments cry in fact if you look at the history of <laughs> if you look at the history of india they've often the incumbent governments have often lost elections whenever the price of onions has spiked so that and that ha- happened again uh, in 2013 2014 and partly set the stage for the government then to be thrown out of power but this is an you know, like a very important economic point and i see it in many developing countries it's made in fact as i say in this chapter that there are some mistakes only phd's can make and i learned that in india when I, when the phd prime minister and his associates were arguing in 2011 2012 when inflation was surging the fact that they were making the case that listen inflation's going up because demand's very strong in the economy well we checked it out uh typically like in economies which boom like over long periods of time and are able to sustain high economic growth rates inflation tends to be very low in those countries why because investment tends to be very high in those countries investment tends to be high enough to meet any consumption demand and to sort of clear any supply bottlenecks in that country so that's why what we find here is that in economies that grow at a pace of 6% or more typically inflation tends to be below the emerging market average over that period and that for me like is an uh, a very interesting sign out there in which economies is inflation too high or too low today as you can see here the brazil turkey russia all these economies basically have very low economic growth or contraction and yet inflation is very high on the other hand you have countries in eastern europe and and east asia where investment rates are relatively high and uh, inflation is quite ma- uh, under control and running below the average the other sort of notion i sort of get to deal a lot with policy makers is that they like to think of strong currencies as a sign of virility right you know like machoism that we have strong currencies and stuff but really the key to economic success i often find is having a cheap and stable currency that countries which have a cheap and stable currency is what really makes them competitive in places like brazil russia those exchange rates had become so expensive at the, uh, at the beginning of this decade that everything was uncompetitive so as i write in the book that in places like uh, brazil hotel rooms would cost $1000 a night in rio and sao paulo at the peak of the uh, of the bubble in 2010 and and you uh you had concierges in places such as uh, new york who who came up in hotels speaking portuguese just dealing with brazilian clients who came shopping 
in, uh, by the truckloads in New York uh, back then. But the thing also, but the point I make out here is that cheap is just a feeling. Why do I say that? Because I, we looked at so many of these economic metrics, like real effective exchange rates, unit labor costs. And what we found was that it's very hard for those alone to tell you if a country is cheap or expensive. It's when you travel to a country and you get to know what's the price of a hotel, a coffee, a, a meal, that often tells you about is, does that country feel expensive or it feels uh, too cheap. And uh, so that's something which I think is really worth looking at. But if you just look at very basic real effective exchange rate valuations today, China looks the most expensive. And all these commodity exporting countries have seen such a sharp decline in, in their currency that they're looking competitive um, once again. So which countries look really cheap? Many emerging market currencies are close to their all-time lows when adjusted for inflation. And some are close to 2002 lows. So this is one very important support factor building up for many of these emerging market countries that their currencies now have adjusted and are competitive once again uh, after being very uncompetitive for a long period of time. My favorite rule, the kiss of debt. Uh, and uh, what is this about? You know, economists have spent a long time trying to forecast when, is a uh, when can an, a country run into big economic trouble or financial trouble. And the only consistent indicator we found which is able to predict that is if, is if a country takes on too much debt over a short span of time. When a country takes on too much debt over a short span of time, it almost always runs into trouble in the subsequent five years. Uh, so, and here the uh, important distinction is that it's not the level of debt which matters, it's the pace of increase. So if you get a very sharp increase in the, in the, in the pace of uh, debt over a five-year time horizon, you're bound to see that country make bad loans, make bad investment decisions, give it to people with a checkered credit history, and, the, and you're basically borrowing from the future for current growth. So the next five years tends to be very bad. What is the threshold level which is critical? So we looked at the 30 most extreme credit booms in post-war history. And we found that those countries, the credit as a share of GDP increased by 40 percentage points over a five-year time horizon, and growth more than halved in the next five years. And very, you know, like in economics, you know that you find most people, you know, with uh, like explanation that on one hand and the second hand this, but this is one rule which was almost bulletproof, that 100% of the time when an economy took on so much debt over a short span of time, it experienced a major economic slowdown in the next five years, and two-thirds of the time, those economies suffered a financial crisis in the next five years. So for me, this is a very important rule. Uh, and which are those economies today which face a case of debt? As you can see, the one economy that breaches this 40% threshold is China. That no economy has taken on as much debt as China has taken on in the last five to seven years, or no other emerging market for sure. And these are some of the other economies where debt has gone up very sharply in the AC era, Turkey and Thailand. Uh, so this is really the key point here which worries me about China has been the explosion in debt. And this is not how China used to be. China's debt profile used to be quite stable till 2008. After that, as they've tried to grow at an unrealistically fast pace, its debt has exploded on the upside. Today, just to give you one statistic, it takes nearly $6 of debt to create $1 of GDP growth in China. At the peak of the US housing bubble in 2008, 
It took $3 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in the United States. So that's how debt-intensive China's model has become after being very stable for much of its 30 years of economic development until 2008. So which are the countries across the world which score best and worst on this credit rule? The red box shows you countries where the banking system is tight on liquidity and where you have a sharp increase in the debt-to-GDP ratio over the last five years. And the green box shows you countries which have, where the banking system is relatively flush with liquidity and debt has been relatively stable over the last five years. So as you can see here, some surprising conclusions, but in some way like an inversion of what was happening last decade, where, where some of these developed countries now, like the United States, the banking system is much more solid. But on the other hand, many of these emerging markets and some of these commodity exporting countries had a big leverage boom, which they carried on after the crisis. And those are the countries that seem much more vulnerable today on the kiss of debt. The last rule, the hype watch. What do I mean by that? As I said, I started my career as a writer uh, out of high school. And a term that I would often hear those days was the curse of the cover story. And what that really meant was that when something made it to the cover of a magazine, that story was jinxed. So I decided subsequently that let's test this. That is this just a superstition? Is this just a, you know, like, like a jinx? Or is there some economic logic to this? And here's what we found. That once a trend made it, or a, in this case, a country made it to the cover of Time magazine in a positive way, then in the next five years, that country did quite poorly in economic terms. <laughs> on the other hand, when a country was on the cover of Time magazine in a very negative way, then the next five years, that country did relatively well. So the issue is that why does this happen? Well, there are some reasons for it. One, that this is nothing against Time magazine, but it is that by the time that the editors at Time magazine feel emboldened to put a trend on the cover, it's likely that trend has already matured. And economic growth is very hard to sustain, as I've tried to explain out here. The number of countries which grow on a sustained basis in a very rapid way are few and far between. And the longer this lasts, the more prone they are to making errors. So that's why this happens. On the other hand, the countries only seem to carry out economic reforms when they have their back to the wall. And so when countries are sort of down and out and be projected like in a negative way, that's when you end up seeing some economic reforms which take place in those countries. Then there is the feedback loop, which is that when leaders have their country on uh, the cover of these magazines, they tend to get much more complacent. But when in crisis, they have much more political will to try and reform and to improve their country's economic prospects. So that's what we found as far as the Time Cover magazine was concerned. Now it comes to the, really the meaty part, right, which is that, okay, these 10 rules are there. If you apply the 10 rules today, which nations look good average and ugly when you apply these 10 rules today. Before I do that, I just want to make one sort of thing that uh, you have to sort of be careful today, which is that the definition of economic success needs to change. Because no longer is it possible to grow at the rapid rates as uh, was the case for the last couple of decades, particularly last decade. And that is because, as I mentioned, some structural factors are behind this. The most important being that the world's population growth rate has slowed down. And also there are some other factors, like there's too much debt in the economy. We are facing these trends such as deglobalization. But the bottom line is that it is very difficult to grow at the pace that you were growing last decade. So the definition of economic success has to change. Now when 
a developed market shows a growth rate of more than 1.5%, that should be considered to be an economic success. In the emerging world, also when you have poor nations that grew at above 5%, that's an economic success. And this definition has changed. Why? Because at the peak of the uh, boom in 2007, there were 60 countries in the world growing at a pace of 7% or more. Today, that number is down to just 8 or 9. So everywhere, growth has been deflated. So you have to keep that in mind, uh, that, you, uh, that growth is lower today everywhere. So once you do that, and you adjust for per capita income, because the lower the base, the uh, higher you can grow, at least in theory, then you can start to sort of have a much better definition about which nations are good, average, and ugly. So now we come to that if you apply the rule today, here is how the map looks. Which are the countries which look good, which look average, and which look ugly? Uh, as you can see here, that when I apply the rules today in the developed world, the United States and Germany in, in particular, to me, rank good on most of the rules. In the emerging world, much of South Asia looks relatively good, uh, yeah, which includes India, Bangladesh, and, and controversially, even Pakistan, which a few years ago was shown on magazine covers as the most dangerous place in the world. But I think that now we're seeing some improvement there take place on the consumption and investment side. Uh, now, this is not to say that, that these countries will be great economic powers, but the fact that the next five years look, look relatively okay for these economies. Uh, in East Asia, those economies include uh, Philippines, Indonesia, possibly Vietnam. And then a lot of people ask me that of all the countries, which countries do you think have the best chance of breaking out of their middle-income status and becoming developed countries, which is a very rare thing to happen. And I'd say the best probability assigned to that are countries in Eastern Europe, that those economies really seem to be in the sweet spot of benefiting from being part of the EU, not having a fixed currency, and just you know, sort of have adopted the right institutional framework from the European Union. So those are the economies that I feel relatively optimistic on, even on a long-term basis. And the economies which rank ugly, well, you have large parts uh, of the world which rank that way today. It's much easier to be pessimistic than optimistic. Uh, but I'd say that the commodity exporting countries still, I mean, have problems to deal with. I think China has, uh, you know, faces the kiss of debt, which is why I'm a bit uh, pessimistic. And within uh, Europe, the likes of France and Italy basically still rank as quite ugly, and that's why the pressure on the European Union is going to remain very intense because of the diverging economic fortunes of some of the core countries uh, of that uh, region. Having said that, though, one thing good we are seeing is that at least uh, for the last few months and quarters, the European economic recovery is gaining some uh, momentum and being able to absorb shocks better than they have in the past. So that really is how I... Uh, Conclude, as you know about, this is where the rubber hits the road, okay, that these are the 10 rules. As a practitioner, if you apply them, this is how it looks. When I wrote the book, obviously Brexit hadn't happened. Luckily, a lot of the opening themes in the chapter sort of help explain on Brexit. But a question that Jonathan was asking me, that how would you rank Britain today? I said it's easy to rank it as ugly because of the fact that it, it, it drops on many scores uh, in terms of that. But that's a discussion I'm happy to have. And the key thing here is to keep this scoring dynamic, that to be open to changing these scores and not be wedded to it, because there's nothing like getting wedded to some of your uh, uh, views. But still, the construct here is to give you the 10 most important things to look at as to what makes nations rise and fall over a practical time horizon. One last point you'll make, I've, I've uh, not spoken about some 
very obvious stuff, education, human development. And this is not because I don't believe in those factors. It just is I found those factors have no predictive ability to uh, be able to forecast how a country will do over the next five to ten years. At education and having good education systems is an obvious thing for countries to do, but that typically takes about many decades for it to have an effect. And there's a very important school which believes it's a chicken-egg story. We don't know which comes first, good education and then good economic development, or does good economic development, and which creates more money, helps create better education systems. Like Korea, Taiwan began as poor countries which employed masses of their people in uh, uh, low-end manufacturing jobs, and then with that money they were able to educate them better and take them up uh, the entire development curve. So I've eliminated many factors which I think don't matter, and even factors I've looked at, such as debt or politics, what is the, the right time frame to look at? Uh, and what is the right metric to look at? Is the level of debt? Is it the pace of increase of debt? That's what I've tried to do in much greater detail, obviously, in the book. So this really is my cheat sheet on the book. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, needless to say, the, uh, that obviously has a lot more. But with this, I'd love to open it up to any uh, Q&A. Thank you. Rashir, thank you very much for that, and um, a, a really a interesting blend, I think, of argument, analysis, and anecdote that is, uh, is also a feature of the book. Um, very kindly, you've agreed to take some questions. Uh, the way we'll do this, we'll start with individual questions. We might go into groups if there are lots of questions that people want to ask. There are microphones around, so please uh, put up your hands, and when you do ask your question, can you say who you are and, uh, and where you're from? Thank you. First question. Just down there. Hi, I'm Michelle. I just finished my A-levels two weeks ago. Um, I'm from Pakistan, but I live in the UK. Um, what do you think of regime changes, for example, in the Arab Spring? Libya, for example, their oil industry was doing well before um, Gaddafi was overthrown. So what do you think a regime change or an ideology change affects the economy and how it does so? Yeah, I mean, as I, as I said, that the general ru rule is the newer the leader, the better it is. But when you have violent shifts in regime, the research that I've seen on this is that it typically takes at least five years for a country to settle down after it has a violent change in, in, a, in, a, in a like regime. So we have to distinguish the two things. One is that is it a smooth change or is it a violent change? If it's a violent change the average time it takes for a country to settle down is five years. So it's basically, when you have a violent change, a very simple rule, at least as an investor, would be don't touch that country for five years. And then you sort of take it from there. So I think that that's why it's taken so long for things in that region to settle down. And, you know, like why Egypt and stuff still sort of feel very fragile even after the Arab Spring, although you can argue that now finally maybe things are sort of settling in a bit. But it takes about five years. Next question, please. Take the person in the white shirt there, and then the next one we will go with the, um, the gentleman with his hand up in, with the blue shirt in the middle just there. 
Thank you very much for the presentation. I thought it was excellent. I'm just wondering whether or not these principles could also be applied to major cities. When you go down a number of the questions, I, I start thinking about London and about how it's been on the front page of many magazines over the recent years and possibly have, have we seen a, a, a sort of a... Could we possibly be seeing the London bubble burst? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very sort of uh, fair comment. So far, I've thought about this much more in terms of the fact of, of countries. I haven't thought enough about it from a city standpoint, but clearly cities are emerging you know, like a, as more and more important. But I have thought about this a bit for some countries such as India, which have many states in it, because the states are almost as large as countries. So how to distinguish between states is something which I'm uh, working to evolve this in, in countries with very large states. But I think that, yes, some of these things can be applied to cities. And that's my entire point here, which is to really throw all this research that we have done out in the public domain and then to sort of get that kind of feedback and to sort of imp improve on it, or even better, you can use it to try and analyze cities, and, I, and I'll learn something from it. Okay. Uh, my name is Manipake Dumoy. I am the Secretary General for Opposition Political Party um, in Liberia, West Africa, and so I'm very happy with the research showing that it's bad time for incumbents. Um, my interest would be in how do you work out which uh, countries are more likely to take advantage of the uh, demographic dividends? No, I think that's what, I mean, exactly what this does, which is that the first rule tells you this is the demographic, the, the balance nine rules tell you which countries are able to capitalize on that and, uh, and are not. So that's really the way that I've, uh, I've structured the book. The, the opening chapter tells you that. The, the, the balance nine is what it, it, it tells you. For example, the political rule tells you that the best chance on capitalizing on a demographic is if you get new leaders who come to power and they carry out economic reforms in the first two years. The first two years tend to be the sweet spot for carrying that out. And similarly, that are you creating more jobs in manufacturing or are you creating more sort of de dependency on oil and gas? So I think that it, uh, the balance of the nine rules in some way does exactly that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hello, uh, Yves Guillaume here from the University of Toronto, um, Global Brief magazine and occasionally Huffington Post Canada. You mentioned structural factors a lot here and you mentioned China as a key factor. I wonder why it hasn't been mentioned that structural uh, imbalances in you know, accumulation of capital between the West and the East um, might have an impact on the future of emerging markets. Um, what happens to China with its new role, with its fiscal problem going forward? And what's the role of the digitization of competitive advantage over the past few years going forward? Thank you. Um, if I may like, understand your question properly, which is that I think that the first question is that I'm not a great believer in dividing the world between East and West and you know, that kind of a power play. I just don't think the world is evolving that way, uh, which is that that's the way that we classically think of it. And yes, now for example, even when it comes to geopolitics, uh, you know, like many countries in Asia are much more aligned with the United States than uh, they're with China. China is aligned with some countries, especially those you know, with which it's being, uh, um, building very strong economic links. So I think it's more about you know, countries emerging as sort of uh, regional powerhouses and then sort of building things around it, and there are other countries sort of opposing that. So with this East-West definition, I think, is just not playing itself out either in economic terms, because in economic terms, there are as many bad nations in the developed world as they are in the developing countries. 
uh, from an economic standpoint. And even geopolitics is playing itself out that way. <laughs> Regarding digitization, I think that, that it's clearly true that manufacturing is not what it used to be, and we're seeing premature industrialization. But I still feel for a poor country that uh, there's enough scope to try and grow rapidly through industrialization and through manufacturing. So the level at which uh, pre uh, industrialization is taking place is, is, is moving lower in terms of the jobs being created is moving lower and lower in terms of per capita incomes of nations. But it is still the key for growth. Like look at what's happening in East Asia, that China is losing market share for low-end manufacturing jobs, but the economies which are picking up the slack are Vietnam, Bangladesh, and possibly Cambodia. So there is market share gains to be had. Uh, so I think that it is a, an evolving process, but I think for nations to just sort of say that, okay, now we're getting more uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and that's going to completely hollow all the jobs out, I'm not a believer in that theory. I think that these are much more slow-moving processes. The person just down towards the, the frontier where I'm pointing, that's it, and then we'll take the next one from... Hi, that was a really wonderful talk. My name is Pallavi. I happen to be from the same college as you are, Sriram College of Commerce. Great, thank you. Uh, uh, I had two questions. One was that the rate at which mechanization has been taking place and the demand for humans as labor is falling. What do you think as the possible solutions for that? And my second question was, who do you support for the US president? <laughs> Okay, so I'd say that on the first question is easier, so let me answer that, right? So which is that, uh, that, the, the, that the thing is very simple, which is the fact that, you know, like I have an entire chapter in the book on why people still matter. And my basic take is that robots are coming, but just in time, which is the fact that uh, I think that the, biggest ch the bigger challenge the world is going to wake up to is the fact that you're, uh, that you're facing labor shortages across the world, uh, that you will face greater labor shortages because of the fact that the working age population growth rate is declining quite a bit. So look at the countries where robot population has increased the most and robot density is the highest today. Japan, Korea, uh, Germany, and possibly even China now is seeing a big increase in robot population. So I think that robots are coming to help, not to displace. That's the way that I sort of see. So my entire thing is don't fear the robot. It's coming just in time, uh, in terms of it. The, the problem is weak economic growth. So, but uh, there's a lot of analysis done on this, which I again talk about in the book, that given the weak economic growth, job creation for that weak economic growth, in fact, today has been better than average. So the problem is weak economic growth, not the fact that not enough jobs are being created per se. And the robot population is coming in countries where the working age population is declining. And so... Uh, that's what my demographic stuff basically pointed to, and I speak at much greater length. There's no way I'm going to be able to say as to who I'm going to vote for U.S. president because I don't have that choice. Uh, I still have a green card. So can I take the you know, sort of uh, uh, exception to that? I mean, my entire point is this, though, I will say, which is that I fundamentally believe that the U.S. has moved to a post-democratic world. What do I mean by that? That if a leader like Trump, let's say, with this kind of talk, was rising in an emerging market, there'd be complete panic in that country. You'd have the stock market, the currency declining, you'd have financial panic. In the US, it seems to make no effect. 
It's partly because the institutions are so strong in the United States, I feel, that no matter who comes to power, the difference that person can make or any damage that person can potentially do to the institutions, to me, is very little uh, because of the checks and balances which are there from a independent uh, courts, the Fed to uh, the Congress. So I know it's a fascinating election to, f- like to follow, but the difference that it can make, according to me, is very little. Unlike an emerging market where the institutions are weak, a leader can come and really reckon or make a nation. Hi, Richard. I'm Swastik. I work uh, in a European investment bank. So I've got two questions. You mentioned that the next crisis is going to be made in China. And usually these tend to happen once every eight years. So we should imminently be expecting one. How are you hedging yourself and your portfolio against China? Because obviously, you're going to have a financial crisis, which uh, even though originating in China, but its ripples will be global. Right. Um, And the second question, we are... At the end of almost, you know, just over two years of the Narendra Modi government, are you expecting now that there will be a plateauing out, given he is a strong leader? Yeah, okay. So on the, on the first thing is that my base case is not about China having a financial crisis. What I said, uh, you know, like, you know, basically there was the fact that the next global recession will be made in China. And a global recession doesn't have to be a financial crisis. It can be a mild kind of global recession, which, uh, which has happened. Uh, unfortunately, our last experience was 2008, and we tend to think of that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the, the moment you mention recession, we think of that. But that was the worst recession, as we know, in 70 years or so. So I don't expect something as sinister like, like that to happen. But who knows? My entire point about China is the fact that yes, this is that China ha- uh, and the Chinese economy has already slowed down a lot compared to where it was. So many people ask me the question, when will China have a hard landing? I'm saying it's already had a hard landing. It it was an economy growing at 10% at the beginning of this decade. And now most independent forecasts say the Chinese economy is growing at 4 to 5%. So it's already had one. My fear is that, that if they keep on increasing debt at this pace, you could have another stumble in the next year or two. And the way that I'm hedging it basically from a, now you're asking from the portfolio standpoint, although this is much more of an economic book than a portfolio book, but I'd say the way that I'm hedging it basically is that we are, we are keeping away from China itself and from stuff which is directly related to China. So I call my portfolio the post-China world portfolio, which is that it's moving beyond seeing China and to stuff which is as less correlated with China as possible. And your second question had to do with Narendra Modi. Yeah, I think that uh, if history is any guide, the best time for reforms was the first two years. So whatever had to be done possibly has been done. You'll still keep getting some incremental reform. This GST may get passed in India finally. But do I expect anything big bang to happen in India from from now? The answer is no. As, As I have a line in the book that India is a country that's consistently disappointed the optimists and the pessimists. Right? So that's the long history of India. And I don't expect that to change. So keep expectations in check. India still ranks as good, but don't expect this to be the next China. But, you know, it's like steady as she goes. India does whatever it wants and is not dictated by these kind of things. So I would say that expect incremental reform, but if history is any guide, the best time for reforms is behind. Thanks. Next question, please. The- Pismuth, the dark shit just there, and then 
the person in the, um, the, the, sort of the light coloured chair with the white cuffs just there as well, please. Hi, uh, my name is Cassiano, and I'm from Brazil, although I go to school in the United States. And you cited a few examples about Brazil, and I'm sure you are aware of the political developments there. And I was wondering what types of suggestions would you give to the president if you were his uh, finan- uh, economic advisor? Thank you. I know. I mean, I, I try not to be prescriptive because it sounds very presumptuous on my part. But I'd say the biggest thing in Brazil, which is out of line, as you know, is that it has the highest amount of spending as a share of GDP of any developing country. That crowds out a lot of private investment and really prevents the economy from doing well. So the whole point about Brazil is that every country needs a welfare state, but you cannot build a welfare state so prematurely. So it has to be to cut back spending. And they're trying to do that now. They're putting a new law, for, as you know, for a spending cap and stuff. But you really need really dramatic action. That in, that how can you have an emerging market with a we- European-type welfare state? So the single most important correction that they have to make is that, and to redirect that, some of that money towards you know, building roads in Sao Paulo and ports across the country. So I'd say that for, is probably the most important thing. Okay. I am Efrain Tamayo from Colombia. I'm a researcher on energy working in Japan. So happy to see that Colombia is ranking good. Uh, my first question is on GDP composition regarding services, commodities, and uh, manufacturing. You mentioned the importance of manufacturing, but I wonder uh, how do you think about a country with not so much contribution in terms of manufacturing, but high contribution on services and IT? How, without this basement of manufacturing, what will happen? But the logical uh, sequence that countries have followed, and maybe this will change, but the logical sequence that countries have followed over the past year, uh, few decades is to first focus on manufacturing. And why manufacturing? Because that's where the jobs are really created compared to services or you know, like IT kind of uh, industries. So I think for poor countries to create jobs, manufacturing is key. And so therefore, even in Colombia's case, I'm happy they focus now much more on trying to develop the manufacturing sector, on creating the right infrastructure to support it. So I do feel that manufacturing is absolutely key for a country's development. Uh, and I would say the same thing is for Colombia. And the richer a country grow, uh, uh, gets, the more it can focus on services and IT-enabled kind of things. But for poor countries, manufacturing comes first. Okay. I, I, sorry, I had a second question. It was on how sorry. do you think Go on, the, yeah. it will the, for countries with declining uh, working population, the globalizations or the multinational companies' contribution to the increase in the home host country? I didn't catch your oh, question. Sorry. Sorry, the sorry. question was on how do you think the uh, globalization of uh, co- multinational companies can contribute to the continuous of GDP growth for countries with decreasing uh, working population, such as Japan? Yeah, no, I mean, like in... In like Japan's case, basically, like, I mean, it's, like it's very clear that in terms of the fact that I'm not sure multinationals, but they need to sort of, be, uh, like, you know, like one thing which I'm surprised is that why aren't more robots coming up in Japan? Like in Japan, it's like really strange that Japan's economic growth rate in the last few years has barely been half to 1%, and yet it's facing acute labor shortages today, uh, Japan. So I, I feel that I'm not sure multinationals, Japan has enough technical wherewithal to do this on their own in terms of building their own robot sort of industry and stuff like that. The why it's not happened to me is the bigger mystery as to why we're not seeing much greater increases than what we've seen in Japan today. 
Next question. This and there in the, in the blue shirt, and then... Um, ha- hello, I'm Zhao Bing, Hi. Uh, first year economics in LSC. Um, I'm an f- international student from China. I wonder what's your view regarding to your chapter 8, good is ch- uh, cheap, cheap is, is good. good. Yes. Yeah. And um, about the uh, p- Great British Ponds, um, it's dumping right now. And um, what do you think of the, uh, like the future inflation effects and uh, whether it is cheap to buy in now? I mean... I mean, I, I get your first question if you can answer that. That I mean, the Chinese currency to me has to fall further. I think that it has become uncompetitive, and that's the reason why you're seeing lots of capital outflows take place from China. So the Chinese currency does seem like one currency which still has a lot of adjustment to, to make in the next couple of years to me. Uh, so I would expect the Chinese currency to be 10 15% lower over the next couple of years if you ask me what my best guess is. Your second part of the question, I've, I mean, I haven't quite uh, understood. Um. What about the um, U.S. Uh, GDP to euro? What do you think of? The U.S. GDP to Europe? My GDP, uh, Great British Pound to Euro. Oh, yeah. Between the pound and the dollar. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think that, as you know, that the uh, uh, sterling went into this crisis, uh, uh, many things, as having the largest current account deficit of any major country in the world. And I think that what we sort of know is the fact that, the, that you should expect a, che- a cheaper sterling for longer, uh, is what my feeling is. So I think that sterling, I still see, uh, see the sterling depreciating quite a bit going uh, in the uh, quarters ahead, uh, because the currency had become very uncompetitive. It was very uh, reliant on foreign capital to, f- uh, to fund its growth. So it's only a natural to me that sterling falls further against the dollar in the next uh, few quarters. <coughs> yeah? Hi, uh, my name's Ria. I'm from India, but I'm studying in the US. Um, so two questions about India's economic growth for you. So first, while I was going through your presentation, a couple of things leapt out of me. So one was you described Narendra Modi as a fresh leader, and then you spoke about um, low inflation as being the key to growth. And then it made me instantly think of Rajan's quote-unquote resignation. Yes. Um, so just wondering whether you think um, that's a good move because he was somewhat at odds with the government, or is that going to now hamper India's um, growth prospects? Um, and the second question is, I think somebody was talking about the development of manufacturing versus services. And India, in that case, was an anomaly because services leapt up in terms of growth, but manufacturing has remained stagnant. So, and I think the government's been trying to change that through the Make in India policy, and progress has been somewhat, um, I mean, it's not been great, but it's been like somewhat moderate. So whether you think that's going to, that's like a good measure per se, and it's going to improve with, say, measures like the GST. Yeah. So because Modi is coming to the, you know, sort of uh, critical phase where two years ago, you know, like, I mean, are, are like over. So he's just about making the new, le- you know, fresh leaders kind of thing. But I'd say the point, I mean, the, I'll say there about the central bank governor stuff is, you know, pretty sort of, uh, like I was in India. So they ask, so just like you ask about Brexit here all the time in India, the favorite question is, you know, Brexit. You know, how do you explain what happened to like thing? And I have a quote in the book, which goes back to a meeting I had with a, 
the uh, Malaysian Central Bank governor uh, in in ninety seven, and he gave me like a great line. He said, "Central bankers uh, are like uh, hot tea that you really appreciate them only when they are in hot water, right?" So I think that the problem in India is that you really appreciated Rajan or the, or the government did when the country was in a bit of a crisis mode in two thousand thirteen, and you and you wanted him. Today, because things have stabilized, he is seen as dispensable. So, of course, I mean, I think that I'm, you know, with the majority that uh, that uh, that he should have stayed on and he should have been given a further term, and that would have been good. But to me, this is how ruthless things can be, which is that because he did a good job, partly because of that, today he's dispensable uh, in terms of how, like like how it is. And maybe when we have some economic trouble come our way, we will realize that uh, that you know what we are. missing but today he's seen as dispensable partly because he did a good job in terms of helping stabilize the uh, economy uh, your second thing is about manufacturing uh, yeah i think that that one thing which is very well established in india is that despite relatively high economic growth rates the job p- uh, picture is very poor and it's partly because of this that the growth has been led by services and not by manufacturing so that was the point i was making earlier also that if you really want to create jobs in an economy and grow rapidly you you have to still focus on on manufacturing and why india is not picking up that market share loss that china is ceding uh, to uh, at the low end to vietnam cambodia bangladesh is something which is still disappointing to me and 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 just one last point which i have said so in the book to there is a slight mistake i feel in this make in india campaign is that it still is sort of that we want to focus on making very high end goods in india defense other stuff etc you know but in india it's like amazing that 75% of incense sticks which are used you know like in india a lot as you well know uh, in which is such a quintessential indian item is made in vietnam you know and the idol in, in front of which it's put the ganesha is made in china so it's like this complete bizarre thing as to how india's you know still does so poorly on manufacturing that is making those very basic goods which provide mass employment and that's something which i think india is still missing a trick on it so very interesting thank you next two questions Person at the very back with their the very back there with their hand up, and then also um, the person with the the red shirt. Maybe it is um, just down. Hi, uh, Stefan. I'm studying here at the LSE.、Uh, my question was because you mentioned Germany as under the developed countries as one of the best looking ones,、um, but you also said what is required is a working age population which is growing or at least not stagnating as much as the other ones. Do you think that Germany's strong Manufacturing position can actually offset its demographic problem and its work- working age problem. Yes, it can. You know, one thing which I should have specified is that, you know, when I have these ten rules, there is no country which is going to rank ten on ten. It's like if if you rank well on six or so, you're doing quite well. So in so I don't think the two are、uh, the two are basically one's a positive, one's a negative. That's how I would rank it. And so therefore, I feel that part of You know, Germany's at least for a while the pro-immigration stance was partly like a sort of answer to this terrible demographic challenge that they face. But I think that Germany today has the lowest fertility rate of any country in the world, possibly. So my point is the fact that the two are not complementary, but the two are offsetting each other. So, so when I do the rules on the on the ten rules, demographics is clearly like a negative for Germany,、uh, and manufacturing is a positive. So. That's the key thing here. That no country is going to rank ten on ten on all the rules. Yes,、um, Dr. Keith Postler,、um, 
tutor in management accounting at Birkbeck. Um, your model depends a great deal um, on GDP, which many commentators now um, find problematic. Um, can you factor this in, or do you have some view on this, and where, where do you think that might lead? And the second question would be, what do you see um, uh, countries that in some sense are emerging, such as maybe the UK, um, uh, <coughs> to solve the problem when they have had a manufacturing base and are promoting highly um, uh, high-tech? Right. So the first question, I agree with you that you know, GDP growth rates is not a perfect indicator. There are, um, there are problems with it. But there's a, there's a larger question, which is that should we be just focused on, on economic growth? I think that's what like, you're trying to really get at, which is that should the focus just be on GDP growth for, like, to see how a country is doing? And here I find I mean, like, very interesting that you know, people have published uh, surveys about happiness. And what I find here is quite interesting, which may, you know, like, uh, sounds uh, like obvious but not politically correct maybe sometimes, is that the richer you are, in terms of the higher the per capita income, typically the happier that country tends to be. The two tend to be quite highly correlated, happiness versus per capita income. So the entire objective here is that over a period of time, when you have high economic growth, it leads to higher per capita income and leads to better uh, sort of happiness for, for a nation. So I still feel that GDP growth may be imperfect, but it's still the best sort of indicator to look at how a nation is doing. Because over a period of time, you want the people to be largely happy in a nation. On the second bit that you asked me uh, had to do with uh, the... Advanced economies like... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as UK is concerned, I think that manufacturing is still key. I mean, like in terms of... It's one of about balance. There's no way an advanced economy like UK, I know you call it emerging, but an advanced economy like UK will be able to grow be just because of manufacturing. But I think that there is something out of balance when services is doing so well and manufacturing is doing so poorly relative to other countries. As you said, that Germany and all, you know, like the manufacturing is much stronger out there. There's Sweden when, where, and like Scandinavia where manufacturing is much better. So in that regard, I guess you needed a cheaper currency and you needed people to focus more on the outer regions apart from London to possibly create the better environment for manufacturing. So I agree that it is very difficult for UK to grow just on the basis of manufacturing, but its share today seems relatively low compared to even other developed countries. Right, we'll, take, um, we'll, take a, we'll take a couple more, one from the top and um, one from the bottom. Uh, the lady with the white top has been waiting a long time, so we'll go with that. And then the person right in the middle, uh, um, in the, at the top with the, the glasses. I'm Surbhi from India. So Hi. you had mentioned about deglobalization would be the new buzz and talked about the causes and statistics. But what would be its effect on the global economy in the long run? And in your uh, opinion, is it good to be an open economy or more towards a closed economy? And my second question would be, what is your main argument in favor of democracy uh, in regards to the economic development, economic growth uh, against uh, dictatorship or, or author authoritarian leadership. Great. So I think, I mean, as far as the first question is concerned, I think that clearly this uh, period of deglobalization is not going to be good for, global, uh, I mean, for the global economy. 
Having said that, ironically, I feel in today's day and age, it is economies which are much more dependent on domestic demand rather than exports, which have an advantage. Simply because we are uh, in a very exceptional period today. That for the first time in history, global trade today is contracting even though we don't have a global recession. Right? So it's a terrible time to export your way to prosperity. But some countries may still have to do it, but it's, it's a bad time to do it. So countries which are much... Uh, so. Uh, generally, being more open is better, makes you more competitive and like helps you grow. But in today's environment of deglobalization, where economic growth is weak across the world, I think that having much greater domestic demand is a better source of support. The second point is great because I've dealt with that extensively in my book. Is a, an authoritarian or a democratic regime better for economic growth? And here's the conclusion that I, I, come, to, uh, I come to it, which is that in economic growth terms, they both lead to a similar outcome. So, but here's the big difference. Under a democracy, you end up getting much more stable economic growth. And under an authoritarian regime, it tends to be very volatile. So the fastest growing economies in the world, I think, uh, you know, like 35 of the 40 fastest growing economies in the world, uh, which grew above 7%, did so under an authoritarian regime. On the other hand, the uh, uh, biggest economic slumps in the world ha also happened under an authoritarian regime. So I think that's the point I made earlier, but this is a, a much big section that I've dealt with, which is the fact that on average, democracies therefore are better because the outcomes are much more stable. And the final question from the... Hi, I just wanted to ask what your advice would be to George Osborne about moving uh, the UK from average to good in your study. Well, I'd say like it's too late, right? So I mean like, <laughs> so we have already sort of seen in terms of, you know, like it seemed to be all moving, maybe it was too good to be true, you're moving in the right direction and now it's gone the other way. So I think it's too late, but the key thing again would be that now that you have this hand, it is to sort of, you know, remain as uh, integrated with Europe as possible to remain, I mean, like, it, it's all the stuff that the people don't want. So, I mean, I don't know what to say about it because, you, like, you need immigration to help offset the decline in the working age population or the stagnation in the working age population. But the, I, I guess the couple of positives would be to see whether, I mean, to have a weaker sterling to help manufacturing and to help, uh, you know, uh, offset the current account deficit, which is la uh, quite large. And the other point, I think, like, also has to do with the fact that you know, you know, whether you can do something to sort of move away from uh, greater regulation coming from the European Union. I think that's been one design fault. We know with the European Union is the amount of regulation that comes with. Uh, I think that's the, I mean, those are the two better things which can happen. But otherwise, the stuff which typically leads to nations doing better, the UK has already violated many of them. Uh, you know, but that's what, and that's my point about the book, which is not to be prescriptive, but to be observant that which countries look good, average, and ugly, because I've long figured out that giving advice to policymakers generally uh, doesn't go down that well. <laughs> and on that note, um, I should say, I should say uh, thank you. I'm sorry everyone has not had the chance to ask all of your questions. I hope that you will find the answers to them in uh, Rashir's book, which, as I said at the beginning, um, are on sale outside, and I think you're kindly doing some signings as well. I think all that's left of me is to say thank you. With that map on the, on the wall, maybe we can tempt you back in 10 years' time and uh, have it there again and see, see whether what you've had to say is, is correct. But for now, 
Thank you very much indeed for your time.